who knows my dear brother Fred Wolf. Uh, and, and because of the fact that you, you know him, you also know he's one of the more colorful characters among us. Um, but since you know he's one of the more colorful characters, you also know that my brother Fred has a great love for the Lord. And he has a great love for this church and a great love for the practice of true religion and right doctrine. And he hit me with something last week that really made me think. Um, we were sitting together in the fellowship hall and we were talking about our homecoming celebration at the end of the month and about Reformation Sunday. And then he said to me, he said, you know, Reformation Day is such an important day in the life of the church. It's a shame that we don't do more to build up to it and to celebrate it and to help people understand what it really means. Because in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, Reformation Sunday is just as significant as any of the other Christian holidays that we celebrate. Because it is the very celebration and reaffirmation of the bedrock truths of the gospel. And he said, we just kind of blow past it. And, and he's right. And, and so I want to try and, and rectify that this year by taking these next four Sundays before Reformation Day to begin to, to maybe ramp up to it and to explore its implications and to understand some of its central doctrines so that we will hopefully come away with it and from it not only better informed about what it means and about what the Reformation was all about, but ultimately come away from it more focused on the centrality of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that, that is the pinnacle of everything we do here, right? And the very beating heart of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I think, I hope you're going to see that uh, and a piece of that today in our continuing look through the Sermon on the Mount where our Lord Jesus introduces one of the essential tenets of the Protestant faith, and that is the overarching sovereignty of Almighty God and His particular providence that's at work in our lives and in the world around us. And so, I continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 5 that we've been doing from the beginning, and then jump to chapter 6, beginning in verse 25 through 34. So, look, you have your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, and listen for the voice of the Spirit. So seeing the crowds, he, of course, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And they neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, uh, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. <coughs> But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Father God, we thank you for this journey that we've been taking through the Sermon on the Mount. And we ask, Father, in this section today that you would open our hearts and minds to receive uh, from you all that you have for us today, Father. Because we want to see Jesus in the words. We want to see him in the text. Uh, and, and we want, Father, by your Holy Spirit to be filled with all that you have for us today in his name. So as, so as I said in the opening, if we are to understand the essential elements of the Protestant faith in general and of Reformed Calvinist branch of it in particular, one of the things we need to understand is what theologians call God's particular providence, which is really just a fancy way to say that God made everything that we see and experience around us and that he controls and maintains that creation by his direct involvement and superintendence. And unfortunately, though, as important as that doctrine is to our Reformed faith, it seems to be one of the first things that we all would abandon any time trials or difficulties come our way. Particularly if we also maybe feel like we have a want or a need that we don't think God is meaning to our human satisfaction. Because in our fallen natures, we don't seem to ever be satisfied, do we? We all seem to be searching for something that remains just out of reach. We're all wired with appetites. We, we just naturally long for satisfaction despite the fact that it is something that our world cannot provide. But somehow that doesn't stop people from looking for it, does it? Uh, some search for pleasure, others for possessions, some for a position and power and others for popularity. But, but most folks never seem to be satisfied. In fact, one of our congregational forefathers from the mid-1700s, a man by the name of James Nichol wrote about this. He said of himself, he said, though I can trace my pedigree through illustrious heroes and renowned kings back to the founding of nations, this would not furnish my soul with all it would desire. Though I had the knowledge of all educated men summed up in myself so that the wisest philosophers might come and learn at my feet, Still my desire would not have its void fulfilled. Though I had all the magnificent titles, honorary appellations, and grand distinctions, even these would not fill the extensive blank. Still would my desire be making new demands. Though the earth should burst open all her silver veins and golden mines to enrich my treasure, though my throne were of one pearl and my crown of one diamond, though my guards were kings, my menial servants, princes, and my immediate subjects, nobles, though the daily guests of my table were thousands and tens of thousands of honorable personages, though my fountain should flow with oil and rivers stream with wine and the forest drop honey, yet my heart would not say it is enough. Which really amounts to forgetting entirely what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 11 when he says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay back? For everything comes from who? Yeah. Him. 
saints is by his power and is intended for his glory. And Paul closes this line with a little small doxology. Let's read it together. It's all glory to him forever. Amen. Right? And church, this is key. This world and our existence in it are not intended to be human-centric, but to be God-centric. We were made to bring him glory and not the other way around. Because one of the primary propositions that the great reformers rediscovered in Scripture and held out at kind of the forefront of their theology is the fact that the Bible is clear the world is for God's glory, not for ours. So at some point in, in eternity past in the secret council of the Trinity, the Godhead decided to create a universe that would bring himself the most glory, not that would bring human beings the most glory. But God. And, and then, even knowing how humanity would use its initial gift or free will to mess it all up, decided to make it anyway. And then make the ultimate sacrifice to redeem it in the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And, and so in all things, we have to remember that we're living in God's world. And we're playing by his rules. And, and we're working out his plans. And most of all, moment by moment depending on his provision, whether it's for food or clothing or shelter. And above all things, even for our very salvation, because it's all his idea. It's all his plan, and it's accomplished by his works. Uh, and that we should, as one author said, I like this quote, he said, make sure that if you're tooting a horn, that it's God's horn you're blowing. If it's only your own, it won't wake the dead. You'll simply annoy the neighbors. <laughs> Because it is God who provides all of our needs, physical, material, and spiritual, and he gives all the glory and praise. In fact, another commentator said this, he said, all, all good theology leads to doxology. So that our response, he says, should be wow and wonder and worship. And doesn't that sound like a great way to live, right? In wow and wonder and worship instead of being jaded and, and depressed and... And self-focused and spiritually dead and just always focusing on our own accomplishments. It reminds me of uh, these guys at a motivational seminar someone told me about. There were these three men who were invited to come up on stage and they were all asked, when you're in your casket and your family and friends are, are mourning over you and remembering your accomplishments, what, what would you like to hear them say about you? The first guy said, well, I, I think I'd like to hear them say... Uh, he was one of the greatest doctors of his time and uh, irreplaceable asset to the hospital. So you guys said, well, at, at my funeral, I think I'd like to hear that I was an inspiring school teacher who left an unsurpassed legacy of education to the children of tomorrow. And the last guy thought for a minute, he kind of looked around at the audience and he said, well, th those are great answers, but I, I really think I'd like to hear my family say, look, he's moving. It's a miracle.
you know, sometimes I'll be in a conversation with someone on the, the topic of creation, someone who's an unbeliever. It'll come up, and the person I'm talking to will say something to the effect of, you know, how much faith it requires for me to believe in, in biblical creation. And they'll begin to educate me on, you know, how they think the world really was created, meaning through the combination of time plus matter plus chance. And, you know, they begin to school me on how they believe that like 10 billion years ago, out of nothing, th things just appeared. Right? And from those things that appeared out of nothing, our Earth was created, and eventually we just all evolved from single-cell protoplasm to what we are today. In fact, one, one commentator did a good job of summarizing the atheist creation story. It goes like this. So once upon a point of infinite density, nothing that was really something went boom, and then there was everything. And that everything eventually named the something matter, but because of the ravages of chance and time, that everything that was something will eventually become nothing again, once more with no time for a chance to matter. That sounds pretty crazy to me. I think I'll, I think I'll stick with Genesis 1-1. Yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. Uh, even the atheist Voltaire said the existence of the world embarrasses me, and I cannot dream that this world exists like a watch with no watchmaker. And that maker is God. You see, we give glory to God when we stand in awe of his particular providence in creation and realize that it came from the hand of God. This creation is his intelligent design and that it didn't just happen. Back in the New Testament in John 1, 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then if you continue to read there, you'll discover that that word was Jesus. That's why 1 Corinthians 8 tells us there's one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. You know, it was the, the scientist, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, the guy with the apple and falling apple and gravity, that whole story. Right? He, he wrote that this most beautiful system of the sun and planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things as Lord over all, and on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God, universal ruler, infinite, absolutely perfect. Well, the secular world doesn't recognize that, do they? They look at the material world and all they see is the material. So we look at the material world and we see the handiwork of a maker. But as Newton himself said, God didn't just create the world and turn his back on it. He sustains and maintains it. And we know that's true, right? We, like, we know from scientific observation, if the earth was much further from the sun, it would be too cold to support life. If it was much closer, it would be too hot. Tilted just even a little bit on its axis and life would be disrupted. And yet it continues to be where it's supposed to be and turn as it's supposed to turn. Because God cares about everything that happens in his world. Just like Jesus reminded us in our primary text this morning. And as he reminded those who followed him of that truth 2,000 years ago. When he said regarding the special providence of God. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But we have to remember it's God that does the sustaining and looking after it and not humanity. One author wrote here of human pride in this area. He said, some men become proud and insolent because they ride a fine horse or wear a feather in their hat or are dressed in fine suit and clothes. Who does not see the folly of this? He said, if there be any glory in such things, the glory belongs to the horse and the bird and the tailor. So how much more does our glory rightly belong to God? Because we not only glorify God when we acknowledge that all things are from Him, but that all things are created by His particular sovereign providence and redeemed and recreated by His grace. Because over and over again, the New Testament writers return to the theme that as Christ followers, we are no longer merely creatures, but we are God's new creation. That the old is gone, new life has come. And that with that new life comes the responsibility of new behaviors. And that we need to be bearing fruit in the kingdom. And in doing that, when our lives reflect Christ in his teaching, it brings that glory to God. In another of his letters, Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians, he said, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. But whatever you do, so if you're a teacher... Or if you're a keeper of the home, or you repair cars, or you sell shoes, do it to the glory of God. Don't, don't look for people to acknowledge your accomplishments or your efforts. Don't, don't wait around for someone to write a nice eulogy about you like those three guys. But let them see that you are living for Christ now. Don't, don't be spiritually dead, but let people say, look, he's moving. He's moving in and for the glory and the will of God no matter what we do. Speaking of Reformation subject, there's a a quote loosely attributed to Martin Luther along those lines. He said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. And not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. If a man is a Christian tailor, he should say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me do so. So that I can earn a living and so that I can love and serve my neighbor. Church, which suits God's providence and brings him glory. That's why Jesus says in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. And when the world sees that, it brings glory to God. Which brings me to the third and final way that we bring glory to God in his providence, and that's by sharing the gospel. Which, incidentally, is something else we are providentially commanded to do. Sharing how Jesus Christ has done a work in us. Because church salvation is a providential work of God. And you didn't participate in saving yourself. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what can dead people do? Nothing. As a dead person, you can do absolutely nothing to help yourself. Everything you experienced in salvation came in response to what God had already providentially done. Particularly for you. And so this morning, if you've repented and placed your faith and your trust in the Savior, it's because God loved you first. It's because God drew you to himself. It's because God regenerated you. It's because he sovereignly breathed new life into you and commanded you to come forth just like Jesus did with his friend Lazarus. 
And since God did all the work, he's the one who receives all the glory in your story. And when that happens, church, then there's no need to be anxious. There's no need to fear. There's no need to fret over the source of your provision. Because the particular providence of God the Father is right this moment actively loving you. Through God the Son. By the outworking of God the Holy Spirit. And they are waiting even now to meet intimately with you at this table of mercy. With all of the, the sacrifice and the significance of the kingdom. And so don't worry, church, about what you'll eat or about what you'll drink. But come this morning and be fed. Will you pray with me? Father God, it is truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and in this place that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.